to our Providence series. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to, we're, we're going to be looking at the story of the Exodus today, but we're going to start just before Exodus at the end of Genesis. Uh, Jerry, do you have a preferable chapter in Genesis, like 37? Wow. yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe 37 to 50, but just 50 really okay. probably for the, the end. But Scott, you have a good story? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'll just Scott's throw got a in. number of good stories, but just for starters. For starters, yeah. Well, last uh, time, last Sunday, Jerry mentioned uh, sort of, you, you talked about how Providence, I mean, it's so practical. Again, why we're spending so much time on this. It's so practical because you're going to have chances to put this in, into practice in the week. Like, Jerry, I think your example was sixth grade Bible, and uh, one of the kids will say, like, your, their aunt's got to go to Nebraska for their dog or something like that. And Jerry gets frustrated, gets irked because this is not what he wants to talk about. He wants to talk about the return of Christ or something like that. But this is a seemingly inconvenience. Happens all the time, but this is God's, it's under God's providential care again. So th- this week, uh, I was pulling in uh, to Olivia's place and I was trying to park and I wasn't sure if I was going to back up or I was going to try to squeeze in this spot. And so I sort of said I was going to back in and then I decided at the last minute, maybe I can squeeze into this spot. So then I tried to squeeze in the spot and I hear this scraping sound. Oh. My car gets the car next to me and I just, I've never done this in my life. I've never, <laughs> ever in my entire life scraped another car. And I just thought, oh no, and I knew the guys. I've seen this guy. I knew his car, Olivia's neighbor. I talked to him briefly before and I just thought, oh man. So then I just backed up into another spot. I'm sitting there thinking, Oh man, this is not what I want to deal with. I, I'm going to go talk to this guy, tell him I, I've hit his car. <laughs> Olivia came out and I told her that I hit this guy. And she was like, well, you got to tell him. I said, like, yeah, no, I got to tell him. And so I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, I don't want to do this. But in that moment, I thought, Jerry, I thought about you. I thought, this is what Jerry just talked about this past Sunday. I, this is time for me to put into practice what we've been studying is God's providence. This is going to be, it's a providential thing. It's for my good, for my sanctification, for his glory. And so then I see this guy leaving and I chased after him in the parking lot. And I think he thought, who is this crazy guy chasing me? And uh, I was like, excuse me, sir. Uh, the, I came in and I, I just bumped into your car. I'm, I'm so sorry that I, I scraped your car. And he was just like, he was pretty serious. And he came over to the side. He looked down and he sees, this, he sees the scratch markings. I think he probably did this right here. He's like, don't worry about it. It's okay. I said, well, I feel bad. So I pulled out my wallet. I, I said, I, I should give you some money. So I, I gave him some money. And he was just like stunned that I gave him money. I think he was just stunned. And he just he stuck his hand out. He said, what's your name, man? I said, my name is Scott. I said, what's your name? He said, my name is Unzio. That's what he said, Unzio. I said, well, it's nice to meet you. He said, thank you so much for being honest, he said to me. Uh, and he just, and I started talking to him. He was wearing an NBA shirt. And I was like, you're an NBA fan? He's like, no, this is my workout shirt or something like that. But we just had a conversation for a while. It was great. And I said, have a great day. Well, every time I've seen him since then, he has gone out of his way to talk to me. Uh, he's, the next day I saw him again, he was like, how's it going, Scott? That's what he said. I was like, Unzio, right? And then the next day I came in, he's over there working on one of his cars. He gave me like this peace sign. He's like, well, what's up, Scott? That's what he said to me. That's awesome. I was like, how's it going? You know, good morning. Like, have a great day. But here it is. Again, God is working this for my sanctification. Now he's, we have built a relationship with him. I would even say, just if you think of Unzio, pray, pray for him. I don't know where he's at spiritually, but pray for an opportunity where I could talk to him about the gospel. But just again, this is so practical. We do, it's going to be a lot of doctrine today. But again, we don't want to forget. Like we're going to, we have chances to put this into practice all the time, all day long. And we should remember this. God is at work and just trust him. He, he's going to, it's for his glory, for our good. I thought you were first going to say that you thought of me because I scraped the judge's car <laughs> while I was dating Amy. I was trying to, and then... And he wasn't quite as uh, generous as Enzio. <laughs> Greg, can we pray for Enzio? Yeah, is that right? Let's, yeah. let's, let's do, do that. It. Let's pray for him and for our time. God, we are so thankful that you are a sovereign God and you have your sovereignty at work with purpose, Lord. It's, uh, you are guiding all things, governing all things. Lord, to the finest of details, each one of our lives. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that you gave Scott 
Um, and we do pray for Unzio. Lord, uh, don't know where he's at spiritually. We pray, Lord, if he is truly not a believer, that um, you would give Scott boldness to uh, make Christ known. And we pray that you would uh, bring Unzio out of darkness into light, that he would see his sin in need of a Savior, and that Christ would be made beautiful and glorious and powerful to save uh, to him. Um, God, we thank you that you are sovereign over everything. And uh, Lord, I pray we'd find increasing rest in that, and not just rest from worry, but God, energy to live uh, for Christ. God, please be with us today. Open our eyes to see all the, the wondrous things that you have for us in your word. Help us uh, be more conformed to Christ through our time together today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And Jerry, before you say something about Joseph, <clears throat> we keep putting befores <laughs> before everything. Yeah, yeah, before he talks about Joseph, just this is just 30,000 foot view. We're going to spend a few weeks uh, really overviewing some of the Old Testament history and seeing God's providence there. And then we're going to look at some of the particular themes of God's providence over nature and over birth and over death and over everything in between. And so as we do a 30,000 foot flyover of some of the Old Testament history and see God's providence, I think abundantly clearly at work at every stage. Uh, one thing to remember is this, when God promises to Abraham, Abram in Genesis 12 that he's going to bless the nations through his seed, through his family, ultimately that's going to be Jesus who blesses all peoples through him, uh, God is essentially the, the narrative tension of the rest of the Bible is everything that imaginable could go wrong is looking like it's going to go wrong. And God is sovereign over all of it. And he's, every time his promise is threatened, God providentially overrules the threat and makes it work for good. Mm -hmm. So every time something seems like, okay, the people are going to be cut off in Egypt because they're killing the babies. Oh, they're going to be drowned in the Nile. There's going to be no offspring of, of, of Abraham's people. Well, God preserves one seed, Moses, through the basket, and it leads to deliverance for the people. And so over and over again, God's promises are threatened, and we feel in our lives every day, like, there's no way this could be for good. Like you said, no, this doesn't feel like a good thing. This feels like a hardship. Well, it is a hardship, but it's also going to be overruled by God for our good. And so that's, that's one of the major narrative uh, tensions of the whole of Scripture, which is how is God going to bring his good and his purposes out of a troubling si circumstance or situation? So then, then we get to Joseph here. Yeah, and I think that's clearly seen in Joseph. Tyler Williams sent us one time a sprawl video that I wished I could pull up and knew which one it was on, on this about Joseph, where it just looks like it's not going to work out. And God overrules it. And, and Sproul went on to say, okay, so Jacob had a favorite wife, Rachel, two sons, uh, Joseph and Benjamin. Jacob's favorite, obviously, is, is Joseph over all the other brothers. Remember, he gives them a coat of main colors. And this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, right? So um, he had dreams about his brothers. Remember that? They were bowing down to him. They hate him because of that. And he... You know, whether right or wrong tells him these dreams, they almost kill him, but instead they sell him so that they can make a few shekels. They t sold the Egypt, right? Um, and that's really the background why, why we start Egypt and Exodus today. So then he's thrown in the clinker, remember that, for doing the right thing. Um, he hears and interprets the baker and the cupbearer's dreams, but he gets thrown in prison and forget, forgotten there um, because they didn't remember him. Pharaoh has the dream them um, providentially, and they remember him in jail, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. He, remember, um, he reveals that the famine's co coming. So what does Pharaoh do? Puts him second in command. How does that work? Well, sure enough, he's all of a sudden second in command, so 
His earlier dreams are fulfilled because his brothers have to come back to get food and they bow down to him. Just like uh, we saw earlier in his dreams, he reveals himself, brings his whole family to Egypt, and then that culminates in look at verse chapter 50, 19 and 20. And we've talked about this so much. Uh, somebody mentioned Romans on the way in. I feel like this is all is just a commentary on Romans 8, 28, right? All that we're talking about here in the next how many months are we doing this? Several. Could, could be a while. How many years are we doing this? But 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God. So you see, Joseph just trusts, and I'm certain through all that he just has gone through here, he trusts God's sovereignty and God's providence. But what we're going to see today and what we're going to see all through this that we can't forget is that Man still has responsibility. This does not take away from our responsibility one iota. As for you, you meant evil against me. So the brothers did not do the right thing at all. And he, and he says that. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So all of, like Mark mentioned, the whole... Jewish family, all of his family, which one of 70 of them, are brought to Egypt and saved because Jacob shows favoritism to Joseph. I mean, you can go back as far as you want and say this led to this, led to this, led to this. I'm convinced that's what's going on in our life. That's what happened with Scott this week. That's what happened with all of us this week. And I think it's so natural for us to think of it from man's perspective, from our perspective, because that's all that we can see. So it's not live by sight, let's live by faith. And hopefully this series helps us to say, nope, every single event in the life of every single believer, all day long, every day, is working together for good. What's good? That's whatever brings God the most glory, which is what we're talking about today. Over and over in Exodus, we're gonna see that God does what he does to show that he's the Lord. The sun came up today for a lot of reasons, but primarily to show that he's the Lord, right? It's also to get a suntan, it's to make it warm, it's to uh, you know make day and night, to do all of these other things. But every single thing is to show that he's the Lord. And we see it over and over in Exodus. It's a thrilling study. Can I make a, just a practical observation in light of what Scott shared? Because I loved how you said, you know, what, what we said last week was kind of playing in your head. One of the things we've said repeatedly is we want to arm ourselves now against those times when suffering and, you know, God's providence leads us into whatever kind of situation it may, so that when it comes, we have truth deeply seated in our hearts. Mm -hmm. And so I loved, your, I loved what you shared because it's like, you're, you're, I think that was a good example of how we need to internalize this so that when a situation presents itself, we can honestly say, okay, this is exactly what we were talking about. Lord, help me put this into practice. Like, I think that was just a perfect illustration of that. And that's what we're aiming for is so that throughout our week, um, when things come, whether really little or, you know, disruptive, whatever they are, we can have these types of things playing in our head. And we're like, yes, that's the truth. That's how I need to think about this. That's how I need to respond to this. And I thought what you shared was just a perfect illustration of that. Would so hold your spot there at the beginning of Exodus and then turn with me to Psalm 105. 
And I know it's, it's kind of lengthy, but I, I want to read through the whole psalm. I know that's going to take a few minutes. I think it is totally worth it because I really think we could rest our whole case with the Providence series just with Psalm 105. I, I don't think it can be said more emphatically or more clearly that God is providentially directing all things than Psalm 105 says it. And uh, just here, here's what I want. I, I kind of underlined all these verbs throughout the chapter. You're going to see verbs in almost every verse. And the verbs, guess what? They're coming from God. God is the one doing these things. And you will be, if you haven't read this psalm in a while, you'll, you'll probably be freshly amazed by how sovereign God is over history. And this includes primarily Joseph and the Exodus story and all the things involved with the Red Sea crossing and all that. So I'm, I'm just going to read straight through it. Psalm 105, uh, please follow along and watch for who is doing the, the actions and the verbs in this chapter. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. Now here we go. Remember, Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, 70 people, right, Jerry? Uh, Of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land, so where did the famine come from? God brought it. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt in fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He Now look at this. He turned their hearts, that's This is God turning the Egyptians' hearts to do what? To hate his people. Wow. And to deal craftily with his servants. Wow. God turned their hearts to do that. Verse 26, he sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, 
and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. So he brought, out, he brought his people out with joy. His chosen ones with singing and he gave them the lands of the nations and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might, here's, here's the reason for all of that, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Is that not an amazing chapter of the Bible? I mean, just you can't be more God-centered in the way you view history than that. You can't say it. I mean, who talks about history like this? God did this. God did this. God raised this person up. He brought these people down. He turned their hearts against them. He brought them out. He brought the place. I mean, just who is in control? It's not Pharaoh. It's not the people. It's not even Moses and Aaron. Who's in control? God is clearly sovereign over all these events. And so really that chapter is a perfect summary of the whole Exodus story. Any reflections on this amazing chapter of God's sovereignty? I think it could kind of serve as a commentary, like read Psalm 105 and then go back and read the Exodus story, like because it puts some things in place. If there's anything unclear about who's the one over all of this, who's the one moving these pieces, it's God. I mean, you can't get any clearer then um, where was it at? He turned their hearts to hate his people. Um, you know, he's the one who sent the famine. He summoned it. Like there wouldn't have been a famine if God hadn't summoned it. Um, and I love verse 17. It says, he had sent a man. It's not like he looked at what was happening, says, hmm, I need to fix this. Let me send somebody. He'd already sent a guy because he knew what he was going to do with the famine. Um, and so I think we, we take that and we see God's purpose at work throughout all of the Exodus story and like, that's just, remember, God's the one at work. God's the one doing this. Like, take that mindset, that commentary into everything we're going to look at. And I mean, that, that's just huge. That's just huge. Well, oh, I thought about this. Think, think about this. You could hear a skeptic could say, well, why? Okay, yeah, he sent Joseph to save them from famine, but why just not send a famine in the first place? Right? That's how people talk. Hey, why? Okay, yeah, you send a guy to help them with the famine, Joseph, to store up grain. But why not just avoid the famine altogether, God? Like, why did you send the famine? And I, I don't know all the reasons. God has a hundred billion reasons that we don't know. I can tell you biblical reasons why God ordained the famine and Joseph. Number one, if there was no famine, there would be no Exodus, which means there would be no Passover, which means there would be no primary redemptive event in the Old Testament to foreshadow Jesus. So if you want to better understand Jesus, you need a famine to get them to Egypt, and you need a Passover lamb to get them out of Egypt, and you need the blood on the doorpost, and you need the parting of the Red Sea, and you need the drowning of God's enemies. You need all that so we have a crystal clear picture of what the cross is going to do, that God is going to one day save his people and destroy his enemies through the blood of the lamb and lead us out into a new creation and a new Jerusalem. Well, where do we get all that? It doesn't start in the New Testament. It, when Jesus sits down for the Last Supper, which we just talked so recently about on that Thursday evening when he sits down, what meal is that? It's a Passover meal. And all the Exodus imagery is being now reshaped and fulfilled in Jesus, the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So wh why would God send a famine? Because God has something really good to give us through that famine. He has really good purposes for the famine and for sending Joseph ahead. Yeah, and I would just say, I remember one pastor, when he first became a Christian, he started studying the Bible and he started seeing how the Bible like, connected. And he just said, Sola Scriptura like overwhelmed him. And I think it's this, this topic, like the sovereignty of God in the Bible, the more you study it, the more you see it, it's just going to overwhelm you. And if you've read Piper's book, Providence, like it's just chapter after chapter after chapter. Where it's just, he's just washing over you. God is absolutely sovereign, absolutely sovereign, in control. I think we just need that repetition again and again. And Psalm 105 is again and again and again. But again, for me, the application is, 
if this is true of, of Israel, it's true of my life this week. Like he's absolutely in utter control of every single detail again, and he's good. And so again, just arming ourselves with that. But again, we just need this repetition of Psalm 105. Like go to Psalm 105 if you're struggling with it and go there and camp there. Because I know like Jerry, you'd struggle with, you didn't believe necessarily in the sovereignty of God and, and, and everything. And then once you saw it though, you just, you can't unsee it. It's just everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. All over the Bible. Yeah. And it's so glorious. Papa's been uh, um, feasting on Arthur Pink. How many... In Joseph, didn't he see, what, 105 different, I can't remember. Oh, yeah. As Joseph is a type. So when you're talking about the Passover being the type of, of, of Christ and what's to come, you see that all through laced in here in the Old Testament. And so why does God do what he does? We don't need to really know that. We just know that he does so that every day we believe that in our own lives too. And all the reasons we need to know are in the word of God. That's right. There's a hundred trillion specifics that we will never know until heaven about what God is exactly up to. But the big ones are crystal clear. He's conforming us into the image of Jesus. And we know that's true no matter what comes our way. And so that we can hold on to. And there's sufficient, there's a sufficiency to that in God's word. We don't have to know everything. Right. Okay, so let's turn to Exodus itself. And we'll jump in in chapter four. And Moses, of course, tried to deliver the, the Israelites through his own strength and ended up killing the Egyptian, ran away, and was for 40 years, you know, in a, a, basically a, a shepherd uh, for his father-in-law uh, out on the other side of the desert. And he sees the burning bush that is not consumed. He goes and speaks, and God says, I'm going to tell you my name is Yahweh. I am who I am. I am sovereign. I am free. I do what I do. I am who I am. Uh, there are no constraints around me. I am God. There is no other. And I am going to show that off uh, in the coming uh, events in Egypt. And you'll see here in, in chapter 4, look at verses 21 and following. This is when Moses is trying to back out of going, and God says, no, you, you got to go. Uh, verse 21, uh, Exodus 4, 21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you, will say, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go... I will kill your firstborn son. So that, that's the opening thing. And this is the first reference to the condition of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus. Now, I just want to say this, and I want to hear from these guys too, if they, if they want to add to this comment. It is very common. I've heard this many times in my life. You will almost normally hear people say that what happened in the story was God gave Pharaoh a choice. And then when Pharaoh chose to harden his own heart first, then God responded to that by further hardening Pharaoh's heart in response to Pharaoh. Have y'all heard that before? Where at first Pharaoh made the choice to harden his own heart, and then after the fact, God, as a judicial judgment, further uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I know that's popular. It's very popular to say that it's not what Exodus actually says. Here's what it says. The first time we hear about Pharaoh's heart right here, 421, God says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now look at, look at chapter 7. Let's flip to the side here. Ch uh, Exodus chapter 7. And look with me at verse 3. Again, these are the first times we're hearing about Pharaoh's heart in the whole story. Exodus 7, verse 3, God says again, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
And then he says, well, you know, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the, the people of Israel among them. Now you see there, and then look at verse 13. We're told in verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the first time we hear about his heart, the first two times, God says, I'm going to harden his heart, and he's not going to listen. And then when you actually hear directly about his condition of his heart, it simply says he, his heart was hardened as the Lord had said. So, so the, the Lord's purpose to harden his heart was from the very beginning, but this does not eliminate Pharaoh's uh, responsibility. In it. Any, any comments on that opening comment about his heart being hardened? Genesis 15 actually gives us an even earlier thing. When God's making his covenant with uh, Abraham or with Abram at that time, Genesis uh, 15, uh, 13, it says, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So, I mean, even that much further in advance, God was saying, this is what's going to happen to my people. This was no surprise. This wasn't God trying to make the best out of a bad situation. This was God saying in advance, this is exactly what's going to happen, and this is what I'm going to do. And so Exodus just starts getting more specific with, um, with what, ex what exactly this is going to be. Like, why is God going to bring judgment? Well, he's going to harden the heart of the leader of, of this land, which we know to be Egypt now. Um, and God starts laying out in detail exactly what he's going to do. Um, and again, uh, the, the point of this is, and it, it does matter, you know, which comes first. Like, you know, is God, is Pharaoh hardened his heart first or does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Does God say, like, it does matter in, in this sense because it's one of the, the key arguments that Paul makes from Genesis on the whole issue of justification that Abraham was justified. He, he was, you know, God credited that faith as righteousness before he was circumcised. And so learning from the Apostle Paul, it's absolutely legitimate to interpret the way we're doing this because, hey, who, which came first? Well, clearly God announcing this in advance. Um, so again, this isn't trying to, to force one particular perspective. This is reading the text and letting the text determine where we go with it. And that's always the best thing to do. Okay, but could you talk about what it looks like where God hardening the heart? Or are you going to talk about that in a minute? No, no. Or could you go ahead and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so if, you, if you're in, is still in Exodus, turn to chapter 8. I'm going to read a couple more verses in a row here, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. So in, in chapter 8, verse 15, I believe this is the first time you hear about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And this is long after God's already spoken about hardening his heart several times. In chapter 8, verse 15, here's what you get. And again, all the plagues are... We won't walk through all the plagues specifically, but you can see the frogs are going on at this point, and that's are about to happen. So Exodus 8, 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, so God stopped the plague for a moment, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now look at 8, 32, end of the chapter. At the end of the plague of flies, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Look at chapter 9. I know this is repetitive, but look at chapter 9, verse 12. This is at the, during the plague of the boils. This is 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And then look down at the end of the chapter of uh, chapter 9, verses 34 and 35. Exodus 9, 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, 
he sinned yet again. This is human responsibility. He is making a genuine decision to rebel against God. He sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken by Moses. So let me just pause here for a moment. Uh, I, I think that the proper way to try to understand how these two things fit together, you've got God hardening his heart, and then sometimes, in fact, much less often, but sometimes it will say Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and it'll go back and say God hardened his heart. Well, what, how do you understand this? Well, I think the, the simplest way to understand this is that both things are happening at the same time every time. In other words, let me use an analogy. No analogy is perfect. This is a human illustration for what is beyond our understanding. But this is a simple illustration that I've used many times in the past. If you're here and it's, it's, it's warming up in Georgia these days, you could feel that the summer is coming, our, our six-month summer in Georgia. And uh, as the sun is getting warmer and warmer, imagine a hot July 100-degree, you know it's coming, 100-degree afternoon. And uh, let's say that uh, you've got some wet clay. I have no idea why, but you've got some wet clay nearby. And you take the clay outside, wet clay, very malleable. You know, you can shape it, turn it into some pottery if you wanted to do that. I know Jerry might be doing some pottery this, this summer, some pottery Absolutely. lessons. So you take, the, you take the clay outside, you throw it down on the hot asphalt. 100-degree weather, it's, I mean, if you're barefoot, you're going to burn your feet, boiling hot. You, you throw this uh, wet clay down on the ground. And you could say that the sun is going to harden the clay. It's not wrong to say the sun is going to harden the clay. But we must understand what we mean by that. We don't mean that the sun creates dryness and puts it in the clay. You see that? The sun is not putting dryness in the clay. It's not putting dryness. It's not like the clay is just sitting there and God puts... No, no. What does the sun, what does the sun do? It causes evaporation, right? And the moisture that's in the clay dries out and evaporates up into the sky. It's removed from the clay. And now the clay is now left in its natural state apart from that water, right? The clay is simply what it is without water, which becomes what? Rock hard, right? It becomes, it was hard, hard, right? It becomes, it was hard. You can no longer form pottery out of it. It's now useless. You just throw it out. It's, it's, it's now ruined. Okay. So think of it like this. Every human heart is, is, is like that. God, if you think of the moisture there as God's common grace, just the grace that he, you know, he gives us a conscience so that we feel bad when we do certain things. Even non-Christians feel pangs of conscience. So God in his common grace keeps us from being as hard-hearted as we could be, right? By providing the moisture of his common grace in this analogy, right? And if God is to simply remove his common grace, his was called restraining grace, if God simply removes his restraining grace from any of our hearts, we're gonna become more like who we are apart from God. And is that better or worse? Every time we become more hard-hearted. When, when God steps back and begins to remove the moisture of his common grace from our heart, I become who I am naturally, which is in my dead, fallen state, I become more inveterately proud, more irritable, more boastful, more self-centered, more egocentric, more obsessed with myself. Like, that's just what we do when God removes. So God can simply remove his restraining grace. In no way is he violating Pharaoh's will. He's simply giving Pharaoh more of Pharaoh. That's all he's doing. God is simply saying, okay, I'm gonna, I have a purpose to back away. I'm gonna, I wanna remove my restraining grace. And now Pharaoh's heart becomes more what it is by nature, which is fully arrogant and proud. And it stiffens the neck. And of its own choice, it says, I'm God and there is no other. I will not bow the knee to this Yahweh. I will not do it. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Thank you very much. And that, that's who all of us are at rock bottom left to ourselves. And so it's only by God's grace, anyone isn't as evil as they could be. And if God were to remove grace, listen, Pharaoh's will is not being violated. He is choosing of what he wants to do in that moment, which is to sin. 
And yet God is simply removing restraint and allowing him more of what his fallen nature wants. So who's hardening Pharaoh's heart? The answer is, is it God or Pharaoh? The answer is yes. It just depends on what you mean. God is removing restraining grace. Pharaoh is deliberately choosing to harden his own heart. And those are happening simultaneously. And there's no violation of will. God is simply giving Pharaoh over to himself. Thoughts on, I know these analogies are not perfect, but thoughts on those kinds of things. Um, well, thinking of the opposite, I think is important too, because scripture is very clear on a number of occasions, the Lord opened somebody's heart. Um, and again, God doesn't owe that to anyone. Like, like you said, if, if he just leaves us to ourselves, gives us more of ourselves, he's not violating any, any principle of justice. He's actually, um, you know, he's, he's perfectly right to do that. And so we, we have to keep in mind, God doesn't owe this to Pharaoh. He doesn't owe Pharaoh a soft heart. He doesn't know any of us a soft heart. Like, and I think the reason why this matters is a lot of times I think our, our understanding of sin is woefully inadequate. We don't think we're that bad. We don't think um, our potential is that bad. We, don't, we just don't think of sin the way we should. And therefore we have a diminished view of God. And we think, well, God can't do something like that. No, God absolutely can because we are, we are sinners. And if God gave us what we actually deserved right now, apart from Christ, we'd all die and go to hell. I mean, let's just be honest. Um, God doesn't owe us anything good. And so every breath we take is a, is, is a moment of grace and God can do with us as he pleases for his purposes. And yeah, that, like we've said before, this cuts across the grain of our self-sufficiency and, and, and in a sense, our self-idolatry of wanting to exalt ourselves to a place the Bible doesn't. We have to submit to this and realize what God is doing to Pharaoh is just and it is right and it is good in, in, in terms of who God is. He's not sinning. He's not doing wrong. Um, if God hardens our hearts, he's only giving us over to what we already are, already are. If he opens our hearts and softens our hearts, then he's giving us contrary to what we deserve, which is the very definition of grace. But he owes that to no one. And again, I'm not trying to be harsh with that. That's just the biblical reality. God owes us nothing good, nothing. And if we get anything that's not what we fully deserve, then every day we're getting better than we deserve. Even the, excuse me, the, the, the most wicked of sinners that we would look at in this world, you know, maybe a tyrant who, you know, is like Pharaoh doing all kinds of wicked things. Um, he every day is getting better than he deserves. So to say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart is not to say God's doing some horrible injustice. Um, Pharaoh's still breathing. That's better than Pharaoh deserves. And so God is simply, like you said, just giving Pharaoh more of himself. And there's nothing wrong for God to do that. He doesn't owe Pharaoh any different. And another, another analogy, these are, again, all of these are flawed analogies. Just take, say someone's holding, a, this, this one almost sounds too mechanical, but say you have a, someone's holding a bowling ball like five feet in the air, Okay. If the person lets go of the bowling ball, the bowling ball will fall. Well, unless you're in outer space, right? If you're in outer space, you let go of the bowling ball, it won't fall. So let's think about that for a second. If, if you think of Pharaoh's heart as like that bowling ball, okay, God's holding it. When, when God removes his restraining grace, it's not, it's not the removal that actually makes it fall. It's, the, it's gravity that makes it fall, right? Now, think about this. If my sinful desires are always dragging me down, 
My, my, my sinful impulses of na- by my nature are pulling me down like gravity. It, may, it makes me want to become more sinful. God can restrain that and lift me up. He can, he can raise me far above my sinful impulses. But when God lets go, it is my sin that drags me down. It is not God sinning for me or making me sin. It's simply me getting what I want. My, my own, the pull of my own sin is what brings me down. And similarly, when God releases, uh, when God steps back and releases Pharaoh in that sense, Pharaoh goes down because his sin is it's pulling him down. When people say, so does Pharaoh not have a choice? No, Pharaoh has a choice. He loves his sin. He is choosing exactly what he wants. At no point is Pharaoh being forced to do something against what he desires. His deepest desires are being revealed. And his deepest desires, which is true of all of us naturally, is my own pride, my own self, my own self-centeredness. And so, uh, yeah, he's got all all, all the freedom to choose in the world right now, but his freedom is also bound by his sin nature. And he he wants what is wrong. And that's fundamental to who he is. Yeah, I mean, I would just come back to what, what Greg was saying. Again, uh, it's like somebody would say, or like you have often said, we're shocked by the wrong things in the Bible. I mean, I think it's so true. And people will say, how in the world could God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, the, the real question is, why, why doesn't God harden every single person's heart? And then you, then you take it to yourself again, like, how in the world was God gracious to me? Like, my heart was hard towards God in my early 20s. How in the world could God soften my heart, give me new hungers for him, and save me? And I think you, you come to a story like this, and I think you can be amazed by the gospel if you view it correctly, if, you're, if you were shocked by the right things in the Bible. Uh, all of us should have had our hearts hardened, but many have been saved. That's extraordinary grace. And I think it's just a great time to remember the gospel, kind of what Greg was, was getting at too. I think when, you're, when we think this, we think about John the Baptist saying in um, John three thirty, let me decrease, let him increase. I think that's all part of this. We want to take away our sinful desires, have less of those, and we want God to dominate our thinking more. Passive and active, is that part of this in the way God does that? Would that be a helpful thing to throw in there yet? You've talked about that before. Yeah, just to say it another way is when God intervenes in my life to give me holy desires, uh, that is God actively of his own nature imparting something of himself to me. God's holiness is being, by his Holy Spirit, is being worked into my heart. Whereas God is more passively giving me over to my sin when I fall into my sin. So God can remove his restraining grace or he can provide grace. One is more of an active thing. One is more of a passive thing. So that means it's our responsibility. We have to take the fault when we sin, but we need to give God the glory when he actively changes us. And, uh, and I think that produces great humility to go through life like that, not tooting our own horn when we do the right thing by giving God glory but accepting the blame when it's our fault for sin. Yes. Can I, can I say too, like there's, there's a bit of a mystery to this in terms of our experience. Oh, yeah. Like, because, you know, a lot of times we're not going it, to, it's not evident in the moment, you know, whether God is active, you know, actively giving this or passive, you know, withholding and then we are given over. Um, we can't always, in terms of uh, our, our mental awareness, our emotional awareness, make sense of all that God's doing. We have to affirm what Scripture says, um, but that doesn't mean that we're always going to understand every single connection and, and, oh, at this and at this. Like, um, some of this is God, you know, in Deuteronomy, he says, you know, the was it the, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things, you know, are for us and our children. And what it's getting at is, is God will reveal some things sometimes so that we know what's going on, but that's not at the level of our everyday experience. It's truth that's kind of like the banner over our lives. It's the foundation under our feet. 
um, but it's not something that we can fully um, account for in terms of our experience. Um, and so we, we have to be very careful um, when we're talking about something like this. There is a bit of a mystery in terms of how we fully make sense of this, and we have to be okay with that. Um, and I mean, you, I, I think it's clear the sovereignty of God, his providence in these things, and yet human responsibility, but we might not be able to make every single connection between those two things that we want to make. And well, I don't know. And what about, like, it's okay to be comfortable with an element of mystery. And it doesn't mean that nobody can understand it. It just means it's beyond us. These are things that God grasps perfectly clearly but as limited, finite human creatures, we're never going to get it to the degree that God does. And we have to be okay with that. And I think not even close, Greg. I think yeah. you're exactly right. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so we're talking infinitely, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So we would be way arrogant to, to act like we have a beat on what's going on here. And, uh, and I think, I really like what you said, we have to be fine with that. I think rejoice in that. Rejoice that God's ways are higher in our ways and that his thoughts are higher in our thoughts. And uh, that doesn't take any of the responsibility right. away, but that is a great thing to know, that that's the God we serve. Let, let me just take you real quick. Let's go to Romans 11. I know you've gone here a lot, Jerry, with this topic. Ro oh, yeah, stop by nine, too. <laughs> by 11, stop yeah, by nine. Yeah, there's no 11 so good on this. But just the, the, the tail end of Romans 11, here, here's why I, I want to mention this, because when you get there, Ro, Romans 11, if you remember that, was taught a few months ago with uh, the Roman Sunday school class. It deals with the hardening of, remember this, it deals with the hardening of Israel for a time while the Gentiles are flooding into the church, which is right now, and then it talks about a reversal where at the time of Christ's return, many Jews will be converted to the gospel. And here's what's amazing about this chapter. It talks about God both hardening hearts and softening hearts, right? It's, it's a very big theme. If you look at, uh, look at verse, um, uh, well, there's a lot we could read. Look at Romans 11:5. So too at the present time, he's talking about amongst ethnic Jews, there's a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So here's that doctrine again. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. I mean, that, that's pretty intense language. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear down to this very day. That's very strong on God's sovereignty and hardening. And then look, look at the very end of the chapter. Look at verse 30. This is amazing. Romans 11, 30. For just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, the Jewish disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. Verse 34, for God has consigned all to disobedience. What? God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And then Paul goes, this is beyond our understanding. Verse 33, mm -hmm. oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable. This is, okay, guys, this is the apostle Paul who wrote Romans. And he says, I cannot search this doctrine out. I know that God is hardening some and he's softening others, but this doctrine goes beyond the apostle Paul's mind, which means it goes beyond all of our minds because he was very intelligent and, and he was also inspired. Uh, verse 33, again, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable 
his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things, including Pharaoh's hardening, including the Israelite hardening, including the Gentile softening. All things are from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever. Amen. So when Paul deals with the doctrine of God hardening many people in this text and softening others, he says, this is beyond my full comprehension. Mm -hmm. Even Paul says, I cannot plumb the depths of this. I can't instruct God as a, as a counselor. I just trust that this God is in no way sinning. He's in no way forcing someone to sin against their will. Every time I sin, it is my fault, but God is ultimately sovereign over those things. We see this running throughout the entirety of the Bible. And even though we can't fully understand it, we must accept that it's true because scripture so abundantly teaches it. So good, Caitlin, it reminds me of your testimony where you um, have a lot of intellectual questions about, but you say, wait a second, the Lord sacrificed his son. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Can I not trust him with everything else? We can, because we know that along with him, he's gonna graciously give us all thanks. And I do think that while you're in Romans to go back a page in chapter nine, we get a little uh, commentary on Pharaoh here. I'm starting in verse 15. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. So once again, and we talked about this last week, this is all to show God's glory. This is all to show God's power. That's why the sun comes up. That's why Scott hit the car. That's why I hit the judge's car. That's why all of this happens to show God's glory, to show that he's the Lord. And when you read through Exodus, if you get a chance, read through those first 20. If you just even cruise, power read through those first 20 chapters, you're gonna see over and over, God does this so he shows that he's the Lord. He shows he's Yahweh, to show that I'm the Lord to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh, to Aaron, to Moses, to everybody. And then look at verse um, 18. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will, but who owe you, O men, to answer back to God? I love that, that we have to stay in our lane, right? God has a way bigger purpose. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So, you know, it's, there is a lot of mystery, I, I, and I think we can enjoy that and love that and embrace that but still believe the truth of God's word. Yeah. If, if I start, we're going to be here a long go, time. We got a couple more minutes. Go, oh, go okay. for it. All right. So look back in Romans nine, um, into verse seventeen, the part Jerry didn't read here. Why, why did he? He says, "For this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth." So in the same way that human beings don't understand how sinful they are. We, we think we're bad, but we don't realize how bad we really are. We think we know God and we don't. Like that, that's the arrogance that, that lies within every single one of us. It is there um, wanting to bust out and express itself. We know who God is. We know what God's like. Um, 
And what is God doing in the whole Exodus story? He's telling us, you don't know me. I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to show you what I'm like. It's not up to you to figure it out. It's up to me to make it known because if I leave it to you, you'll never get there. You'll never make sense of this. You'll never, you'll never get far enough. You'll never know enough. You'll never understand enough. God has to make himself known. And so the whole purpose of the Exodus, when he says um, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, all that God does in humbling Pharaoh, in humbling Egypt, he's telling us who he is. Why? Because we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. And so many times when you come across folks um, either in the church and outside the church who rage against God's sovereignty, it's because we want a God we're comfortable with. We want a God that's domesticated. We want a God that's tame. We want a God who doesn't make us uneasy. But the God of the Bible is not going to be bound by our ridiculously shallow limitations. He is going to be everything he says he's going to be. And he is not going to let anyone define him differently. And one of the biggest tests of our real submission to him is when we come across doctrines like this, are we going to say, Lord, this is hard. It's beyond me. I can't make sense of all of this, but this is who you say you are. And I am not going to lift one finger in objection against you because you are good. You can't do wrong. And I'm going to rejoice in you, worship you and submit to you because this is who you say you are. Amen. Right, off the soapbox. No, that's great. Jerry, can you close us in prayer? Gracious Father, what a uh, joy today to feast on your word. Lord, this is uh, um, deep and it is beyond our comprehension on so many levels. Um, certainly your ways are higher in our ways and your thoughts are higher in our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, but we love these truths and we thank you today for um, a greater understanding of them. Um, Lord, I pray that this would not uh, end now in just having an intellectual uh, grasp, but that it would impact the way we think uh, tomorrow, that it would uh, help us to cast our cares on you because you care so deeply for us as you have proven on the cross that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all so that we can know that along with the Lord Jesus, you are going to graciously give us all things. I pray, Lord, that we would be anxious for nothing because of this right here. There's no reason we can um, trust you that you are going to give us the peace that surpasses all understanding as we um, come to you in, in prayer. I pray that you would convince us that all things really do work together for good because uh, we love you because you've called us according to your purpose, because you're in control. Um, and Lord, that we know that it's all happening for uh, your good. And you've promised to do every single event that happens for our glory, for your glory and for our good. And so, Lord, we would today just uh, rejoice in that. And, and I ask that, like John the Baptist, we would, because of all these uh, fantastic truths, um, say um, truly that we want to decrease um, so that you can increase. And we pray this in Jesus.